To understand the tides, you start by looking up. The sun and the moon play a major role, but it's all their relationships in the heavens that have an influence, a particular relationship with what's happening in the oceans. Coming up, Jonathan White explains the dance between the sky and the sea that you can watch at least twice a day all over the world. We'll also explore two of the less crowded coastlines in Europe. In Croatia... God, at the end, remembered that there is still space for one peninsula, and he created Istria. And along the Kuli Peninsula, where singer Kathy Ryan lives. One of the things I recommend to anyone who asks me what they should do when they go to Ireland is leave some room for that bit of magic that happens where you say, hey, why don't we try this place? The man in the pub last night said it was brilliant. Let's embark on great adventures from sea to shore in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Did you ever consider that life's ups and downs may just be reflecting the cosmic forces that dance with the Earth? Jonathan White has sailed close to some of the most awesome tides on the planet. He joins us in just a bit to help us get in tune with the daily rhythm of the tides. We'll also explore a couple of charming destinations on two of Europe's less crowded coastlines. Singer Kathy Ryan introduces us to the quiet charms of the Cooley Peninsula in the north of County Louth in Ireland's ancient east. It's halfway between Dublin and Belfast. Let's start on Croatia's Adriatic coast with a look at the Istrian Peninsula. Istria once was part of the Venetian Republic. Its Italian and Slavic communities clashed during the Second World War before most of it became part of Yugoslavia. Today, Slovenia and a tiny part of Italy share the north end of the peninsula, while the rest is something like Croatia's answer to Tuscany in the Riviera. Miriam Abdelghani lives on the peninsula in the city of Pula and joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves. Miriam, welcome. Thank you. Istria Peninsula. You're a Croatian. You live on the, on the very uh, beautiful peninsula, Istria. How do you describe Istria? What is it exactly? It's biggest peninsula on Adriatic, but I would uh, better describe it as the most beautiful peninsula on Adriatic. It's like a God-given place, like God at the end remembered that there is still space for one peninsula, and he created Istria. So what did he add to it that other peninsulas don't have? Fantastic soil, red soil. Ah, because the soil is what is the foundation for the cuisine. And the, Terra and, and, Rosa for olives, for vineyards, for okay. all what we have there for truffles. 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 So when I think of truffles, I think of Piedmont in Italy. And when I think of olive oil, I think of Italian and Greek. But, mm, but no. the olive oil in Istria is respected. Very much so. Actually, for the fourth year in a row, Istria was proclaimed best olive oil a region in the world. Can you imagine how big and important this is well, for us? Well, that is a big deal, considering all the energy that's put into olive oil in Greece and Italy and other places along the Mediterranean. Why would the olive oil be so good in Istria? First of all, we harvest olives very early, while they're still green. Uh-huh. Then you get better quality of the oil, less quantity, but better quality. Okay. And our Istrian olive oil is dark green color. It's not yellow. So a, dark a, a calculation is made. If we harvest early, we get less olive oil, but we get better quality. Exactly. And, and then, we go with that. And then what do you use it for? I mean, how, what, how does that relate to the cuisine of Istria? Uh, very simple. Just take a little bit of Istrian olive oil, 
little bit of salt, pepper, good bread, good glass of wine, and that's it. Or put olive oil on a fantastic uh, fish that we have in Istria as well in Adriatic Sea. You know, when you were describing, uh, you know, a little olive oil, a little good bread, and, and uh, you know, that's it. I, I remember going to a hill town. I forget the name, but it had a rustic kitchen. And it was just a trip into another world. And the, the local people were so proud of their food. And it was a chance for me to get away from all of the intense, the rat race of tourism and just really connect with salt-of-the-earth people having good quality cuisine. Istria is famous for its hill towns. Talk about the hill towns of Istria. Um, What you mentioned, yes, they do call nowadays uh, Istrian uh, hill towns Tuscany of... uh, uh, Because Tuscany in Italy is famous for hill towns. So here we are a little bit to the east. Uh, Istria, by the way, is just a couple hours uh, east of Venice. If if people are wondering, going to Venice, you can zip over to Istria. Two hours and a half drive from uh, Quite easily. And you'll find hill towns. So what's the hill town we should know about? First of all, it's not like Tuscany because it's still wild. Ah, okay. My favorite one definitely uh, is Motovun. Motovun. Medieval uh, town at the top of the hill. A lot of people tell me it's, it looks exactly like San Gemignano, but it's... Um, oh, it is. It is similar to San Gemignano uh, without the towers, but on a hill in a beautifully preserved M-O-T-U-V-U-N, Motovun. And it has a rampart that's beautiful for walking on in the evening. Or early in the morning. Mm-hmm. A rich history, uh, mostly Venetian history. This Venetian. is something that's a little bit confusing to tourists because we go there and, and we see the winged lion of St. Mark. And we have to remember, this is part of the Venetian Empire and Venice had an impact all along the Adriatic coastline. That was when Venice started to create its trading empire. Actually, Motovun was on the border between Venetian Empire and Austrians. That's why such a small town has very important, big fortifications. Yes, because it looks like, why did such a small town get such a fat wall? Because of the border. On the border, okay, between Venice and the Habsburg Empire. Exactly. And uh, Austrians always wanted to, or Habsburgs, they always wanted to take Motovun in their Ah. hands because of the river, Mirna River. Uh, Motovun is overlooking the valley of River Mirna. Why? Because River Mirna goes all the way directly to Adriatic. And Venetians were coming with their ships through that river to Motovun to take woods. To take wood? Exactly. Ah, because they needed wood for their, for their building, for their for, ships. For oh. ships. And to make the foundation in the mud. Yes. Venice yes, is built Rick. on tree yes. trunks jammed deep into the mud in the lagoon, and that came from Istria. But what's so special about that forest, Montevun's forest, it's full of Mediterranean oak. And Mediterranean oak grows in very special curve, perfect for building ships. That's helpful, but also, isn't oak good for truffles? That's right. So you can build ships, or if you just want to grow little mushrooms and have them Uh, underground. You see, uh, truffles are the only mushrooms growing under the ground. And they always grow together with the roots of different plants. In Motovun, they go, in Motovun's forest, they grow together with the roots of oak. With oak roots. So, but it's that underground. Gives special. It's underground. They're very precious. They're very expensive. But how do you find them if they're underground? Well, uh, we need help of animals. In France, they use pigs. We use dogs in Istria for, uh, for that. So you have Istrian dogs that are trained to sniff out the truffles. Yes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with 
Miriam Abdelgani, and we're talking about Istria. Istria is the peninsula in the north of Croatia, former Yugoslavia, which is just uh, a short boat ride from Venice. You can go from Venice to the town of Rovin quite easily by boat. My favorite stop in Istria is Rovin, R-O-V-I-N-J. And it's like a little miniature Venice with no canals that's been kind of pulled up to the heavens on the top. It's a little hill with a church, uh, a tower on top of the hill. And you go there, and it's just the most delightful place to be immersed in, in a wonderful architecture. You've got wonderful beaches. You've got a wonderful market. I'd say it's the most interesting stop on the coast between Venice and Dubrovnik. What are your thoughts about Rovin? Definitely most charming uh, town. You cannot say city because it's very small. Mm-hmm. Only 13,000 people live in Rovin during the year. But during the summertime, you can have 300,000 people there. Mm. It's very popular destination with very good hotels. Romantic bars and, Rom- and oh, cocktail bars, in, literally in the rocks on the coast with chandeliers and pillows. I just thought, I want to stay here. Plus, very good restaurants. First Michelin star restaurant in Croatia was in Rovin. Hmm. Worth visiting, really. It's well known for good cuisine. You see, Rovin in the past was a small island. Only in 18th century, they decided to close the canal and Rovin started to grow on continental side. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why Rovin has this round characteristical okay, shape. because it does feel like a round island that was connected to the mainland. Exactly. So uh, Rovin did not exist in Roman time. It's, it was not important place until Venetians came there. Yeah. So starting from 14th century... That's why, actually, we call Rovin Little Venice, full of Venetian architecture. Miriam Abdelgani is our guide to the Istrian Peninsula of Croatia on Travel with Rick Steves. Miriam tells us more about her country's a cappella clapaquires in a short website extra to today's show. You can hear it at ricksteves.com slash radio. And Miriam, we're talking about these amazing layers of history and so on, and we have the Venetian influence there on the coast and in Motovan with its border with the Habsburg Empire. You live in a town called Pula, and the only thing I know about Pula is an amazing Roman amphitheater. There's Roman ruins in Croatia. Tell us about Pula. Pula is actually not the place where I was born, but Pula is definitely a place that I choose to live because I love history. I love especially Roman history, and if you want to see Roman history in Croatia then come to Pula. It's not only amphitheater. There are a lot of other Roman monuments, but definitely amphitheater is the most important one. It's the sixth largest amphitheater today, but number one best preserved amphitheater today. And it's from second half of first century AD, probably year 70. And when you get inside, you have a feeling that it was finished 20 years ago because it's so well preserved and you get the feeling what was going on there. Gladiator shows. So much history, so close together, so valuable to be able to venture away from the crowds in Venice and and, and explore the Istrian Peninsula. We've been talking with Miriam Abdelgani. And Miriam, last question. The symbol of Istria is a goat. Tell us about the Istrian goat. Why would that be the symbol? Istrian goat we have to go way back to uh, history. 
So, you see, in the 7th century, Slavic tribes came to Istria, but they came to Istria to stay there, and they brought goats with them. And that was something new for people that lived in that peninsula. So we decided that it's uh, worth putting on the flag of Istria a goat. Goat was a best friend of Istrian, giving milk and good cheese. So nowadays, when you come to Istria, don't miss Istrian goat cheese with a little bit of olive oil and good glass of wine. Miriam Abdelghani, thank you so much for a, a look at uh, the Istrian Peninsula, your Thank your you. I, uh, well, uh, you're welcome to come, all of you, anytime to Istria. I'll be there. I will welcome you there. Please say exactly that in Croatian for us. Dobrodošli u Istru. All right. I'll be there. Thank you, Miriam. Thank you. Ireland's Cooley Peninsula is next on Travel with Rick Steves, and we'll get a sailor's look at the tides that keep the earth in constant motion. We're at 877-333-7425, or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Hello, my name is Barry Maloney from County Cork on the south coast of Ireland, and I'm going to share with you my favourite Irish saying. In the Irish language, the saying goes, On te harvas scale kugat. Which means, he who comes with a story will bring two away from you. And I love that saying because it makes me think about the way the Irish love to talk, share stories, gossip, basically. And uh, an example of that is, a month or so ago, I was in, our, in my hometown, Kinsale, walking through the little farmer's market, and I overheard two ladies kind of whispering, half whispering. One whispered to the other, she said, tell me more about that story. And, of course, I listened in. The second lady replied. She said, I can't tell you any more about that story. Sure, I've already told you more than I heard myself. So there you go. That's my favourite Irish saying. It's fun when we think about Ireland to explore some places that everybody doesn't know about. And there's a place called County Louth. It's the wee county, the smallest county in Ireland, that really has a lot of charm but almost no tourists. It's just a little north of Dublin, Overlooked by American travelers and American-born Celtic singer Kathy Ryan decided to make County Louth her home in Ireland, and she joins us now to talk about this tiny little wee county. Kathy, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here talking about Louth. Why? I love it. I was leading a tour there some years ago, and I decided that I was going to rent a self-catering cottage where I could have my own place to cook and all that happy stuff. And I fell in with the locals, and I went back then regularly. And when my son was launched, I decided I could live wherever I want, and that's where I moved. It is a beautiful place. It is highly touristed by people from Ireland and from the U.K., Okay. North America just hasn't discovered it yet. That's interesting. I wonder why we're, it's taken us a little time. I think it's because it was a border county. Now, that would it be it because rural. in the old days, that was a dead end. You would not go against that border of the north. Absolutely, because you'd have to cross over then. And there's a lot of transportation on that corridor between Belfast and Dublin. Yeah, and it's beautifully situated in that it's an hour exactly from uh, to Carlingford, which is a beautiful, beautiful town in the Cooley Peninsula. An hour, an hour from where? Dublin Airport. 
Okay. And about an hour and 15 minutes from Belfast so Airport. So you could conceivably fly into Dublin and go directly to Carlingford, the main uh, yes. hub of County Louth. Describe that town, because that I understand that is sort of the the top town to stop in. Yeah, it's it's the heart of the Cooley Peninsula. Once you leave Dundalk in County Louth and you're going along the shore, the coast road, you're heading into the heart of the Cooley Peninsula. And Carlingford is a town that has cobblestone pedestrianised streets. It has wonderful restaurants, many of them part of the good food circle in Ireland. Lots of locally sourced um products, really high cuisine. Then you've also got your pub grub, some wonderful old, old Irish pubs. PJ O'Hare's would be one (laughs) of them with beer gardens that you can sit out with on a lovely sunny day. Lots of music in the pubs at night. Good nightlife. Good nightlife in Carlingford. Meaning live music in the pubs? Yeah, live music in the pubs, lots of buzz. And then uh, these, uh, you mentioned the good food circle. Is that that's sort of the foodie bars now, gastro pubs or what? Not so much gastro pubs, but restaurants who agree to use locally sourced ingredients oh, and cook the them to a very, very high standard. So you have your pick and choice of restaurants. And with all of that wonderful sophistication, you've got mountain walks, a beautiful coastal walk that was just finished that you walk along the shore of Cooley, and you're looking across the Carlingford Lock at the mountains of Mourne as they sweep down to the sea. It's mountains beautiful. of Mourne as they sweep down, isn't that just That's sounds like it's busting out for yes. song? When you look Will at that, I? Can Will you I? <laughs> let, bless us with a little bit of that beautiful song, because oh, when you go to a pub, you're going to hear this. You're going to hear it. Oh, Mary, this London's a wonderful sight. With people there working by day and by night. They don't sow potatoes or barley or wheat. But there's gangs of them digging for gold on the street. At least when I asked them, that's what I was told. So I just took a hand at this digging for gold. But for all that I found there, I might as well be where the sweet morn mountains sweep down to the sea. You know, there are so many goosebumpy vistas in Ireland and you look at the Mourne Mountains and you see them sweeping down to the sea and you can understand how that inspired people to song a long time ago before there was Bonnie TV. Exactly. And when you are in the villages of Green Ore or Carlingford or, or Meath and you're standing looking over to the mountains of Mourne to Northern Ireland, you have the Cooley Mountains behind you, yeah. the lock in between you and you just feel like you're being held. Oh. It's a beautiful place. It's a challenge for a traveler to pause long enough to appreciate that magic because you could be oblivious to it if you've just got a a checklist of things to see. Exactly. And one of the things I recommend to anyone who asks me what they should do when they go to Ireland is leave some room for spontaneity. Leave some room for that bit of magic that happens where you say, hey, why don't we try this place? The man in the pub last night said it was brilliant. Or you go to Carlingford for the night, but you're supposed to leave the next day to go up to the Giant's Causeway, and you meet these great people, and you say, you know what, let's just stay. I always found that in Ireland, more than anywhere else. There's only one place in my life I've ever stood on the road and hitchhiked in whichever direction the traffic was coming. And you can do that in Ireland. I would just get in the car. They'd say, where are you going? I'd say, Ireland. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Tell and, me a good place to go. Oh, was, and and then you'd enjoy that beautiful gift of gab. That's not a tourist trap. That is the... It's real. That's the essence of Ireland. It's people. It's conviviality. It's that good crack. That's the most important thing I find since I uh, lived there. I lived in New York for years, raised my son there. And I remember before I moved trying to see 10 friends Mm -hmm. for a dinner party in my apartment. Took three months emailing back and forth to make it happen. The date that everybody could do. In Ireland, if I have 10 friends, I email them within a week, two weeks tops. They're Mm. all at my table. There you go. Community is the most important thing. Uh, You know, a lot of it is the language barrier, I suppose. But when I travel, I I think of different countries. I, I make more friends per day. And in Ireland, it's it's got to be one of the top places for just connecting with people who you will always remember as a friend. And you can do that in part because of the wonderful warmth and the friendliness of the Irish people. And, of course, because in Ireland you get this sensation of understanding a foreign language and you're speaking English. I just love that. Exactly. What did Oscar Wilde say? I, I can't remember the quote. I wish I could, but I can't. It's about that just there's a way to connect with the people and the love of uh, conversation and conviviality that is so quintessentially Irish. Irish. Kathy Ryan sharing the highlights of her home in Ireland's wee county Louth and its scenic Cooley Peninsula right now on Travel with Rick Steves. For many years, Kathy was a member of a Celtic music group. It was called Cherish the Ladies. Her solo work concentrates on original ballads and traditional Irish songs. There's more online at kathyryan.com. And that's spelled C-A-T-H-I-E. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Judy's calling from Seattle. Judy, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you for having me uh, join you. Kathy, I know your work uh, through your recordings, and um, I I was actually going to ask you myself for a song. Um, (laughs) Is is there another song about County Louth or any place uh, near your home that especially reminds you of that? Um, Yes, and uh, written by a man that I have great love for, Tommy Makem. Uh, who performed, as you all know, with the Clancy Brothers for many years and wrote great songs and lived in that area for a long time. It was very close to his heart. I'll sing a chorus of Farewell to Carlingford. And Carlingford is the town we were just talking about. It's where you're going to stay, most likely, if you do go to County Louth. Yes, exactly. I'll sing farewell to Carlingford and farewell to Greenor. I think of you both day and night until I return once more, until I return once more. And so that's what it's all about. Hmm. When, you, when you go there, that's the bad news. You're going to have to go back. <laughs> it calls you back. You know, I think um, traditional Irish music lends itself to a cappella in a beautiful way. I agree. And, and it, a lot of it was written for that. It, it might be because of the difficult times and there just weren't a lot of fiddles around or something. Exactly. I, I don't know. But, I mean, it really seems right. When when I'm in a pub, and Judy, maybe you remember this when you were in Ireland, there comes that moment when they're going to do a lament and it's going to be a cappella and it's going to be heartfelt and we're all going to pay attention and we're all going to be touched. Exactly. And and it's going to take you out of the room. It's a communion. Yes, everybody's together. That's beautiful. And you know, that happens in your houses in Ireland when you live there. The night usually ends with song. And you don't have to be a brilliant singer in Ireland. You just have to be able to tell your story and honor it. Because it's not about you. It's about what you're singing. And if you don't have a story to tell, you sing a song, and that's the way the night ends. Judy, I'm sorry, I cut across you. Oh, no, no, I interrupted you. Um, I was wondering how often you yourself go down to a, a local pub and sing. 
I, either yourself or, or as part of a chorus. Quite often. I'm on the bus leading tours a lot, and I'm over in America, and I don't get to do it as often as I would like, but when I'm there, I definitely go out and sing. And I also sing in the church if, you know, somebody passes or there's a christening. You know, if they know I'm home, if my gates are unlocked, they will come knock at my door and ask if I'll sing a few songs. If your gates are unlocked, yes, if the know gates you're of home, the house are unlocked. That is so Irish. <laughs> I, I was going through County Down once. I came into the town and I knew there was a guy, and his name was Eamon. And I didn't know his last name. And I just came into the town and I said, Do you know a guy named Eamon? And they go, Eamon the plumber? <laughs> <laughs> and I go, Yeah, he's a plumber. And, and that was it. And I, I just got and a hold of him. found him. Yeah, because Eamon the plumber, there you go. Well, I mean, Tommy Makem went looking for me once. Uh, I had just moved to Carlingford for the first time, uh, the Carlingford area. I live in, uh, in uh, a little townland away from Carlingford on the Cooley Peninsula. And he couldn't find where I lived. So there was a, a, a telephone man up the pole. And he hollered up to him, uh, I'm looking for Kathy Ryan. He said, is she the American singer? <laughs> and that was it. He told <laughs> him exactly it. where to go. Perfect. Eamon the plumber, Kathy the American exactly. singer. Hey, Judy, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you. Thanks, okay, Judy. I know. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Kathy Ryan, the American singer, who lives in County, <laughs> <laughs> County Louth in beautiful Ireland. Uh, Janet from Sturgeon Bay in Wisconsin emailed us. And she writes, I'll be doing a solo self-drive trip to Ireland in the fall, including County Louth, focusing on small museums, historical sites, and all things textiles. Do you have any advice for choosing a small-town accommodations in County Louth? What is the best advice for uh, finding affordable accommodations that would be characteristic in a place like County Louth? There are some fantastic Airbnbs in County Louth now, and there's one right on the main street in Carlingford, Thosel Street, the Liberty Cafe. Mm. It's a great Airbnb. And I would start with that first if you want good... Um, I think in Ireland that's that's enough right yeah. there, Airbnb. I mean, you know, in, in the old days you'd go knocking door to door to see where who's got a room for rent and they'd hang their shingle out. But now you just go online, Airbnb, yes. County Louth, bam. I'm talking with Kathy Ryan. We're talking about her home county, the smallest in Ireland, County Louth. It's an hour north of Dublin. And Kathy, we've just got a little time less left and let's talk about some of the sightseeing you can do in County Louth. It's, it's a land of epic battles and mythic legends and quaint seaside villages, uh, walks in the mountains. What are a couple of must-do things, experiences that we should put on our list when we go to probably stay in Carlingford as we visit County Louth? Well, I would definitely do one of the loops. There are four loop walks, uh, and you can pick them by degrees of physicality. Uh, how, how vigorous do you want to get? But I would recommend going up Maeve's Gap. Maeve was the great warrior queen of Connacht, her absolute hunger and avarice caused this great battle for the brown bull of Cooley. Her husband had the white bull. She would not let him best her. She had to have the brown bull. So off the armies of Connacht went up to face Cúchulainn, who was the who was the hound of Holland, who mm. stood at the gates of Ulster and wouldn't let Maeve in to get the brown bull. But you can walk up there and you can see where she encamped with all of her people and you can feel the resonance in that site. And you're here and now in this day and age and you're standing on a place where a mythic battle happened and you feel that sense of being in between worlds. It's lovely. And from there, you can look down at Carlingford Lock. You can see almost all the way to Dublin and you can see Dundalk, Drahada, and you look behind you and you can see Armagh, a beautiful patchwork quilt of fields. If you want to venture a little further, the Ring of Gullion is absolutely beautiful. 
It's in Armagh, just beside County Louth, and they have a wonderful fairy wood, the fairy glen, where you can go and see all these little doorways into beautiful trees, little fairy bridges from tree to tree. Is, there, is this man-made or is this natural it's formation? Man-made, oh, so it's man-made, but it's, it's sort of magical. An amusement. Yeah, if you have children. It's a children's thing, the fairy forest. The, the fairy glen. Fairy the fairy glen, glen okay. in Armagh, Sleeve Gullion National Park. But it's a ring dike. It was formed by volcanic activity. And it's stunning. So when you're looking at that from uh, Maeve's Gap or from Carlingford Mountain, you're, you're called to it. But there are also other walks. If you want to do a lovely gentle walk, there's a walk along the coast right from outside of Carlingford Village all the way to the village of Omeath. And you're looking over at the Mountains of Morn the whole way. Oh, Mountains of Morn. And you'll yeah. know the song by that time. It's beautiful. Hey, you were talking about the, the Celtic hero. Uh, Cú Holland. Cú Holland. I was watching Cú you Holland. as you told the story and... You closed your eyes and you smiled and you were just telling this epic, Celtic, ancient battle. And it was, it was like you were some passionate Christian reading the Bible, but you were an Irish person delving deep into your national soul. And I love those stories. It is so beautiful. And well, it's something that is, it's a treasure that a lot of travelers just, that's a huge step to get there. And to know a little bit about the heritage of your going to, every mountain comes to life. Well, epic battles fairy forts, mythic scenes, and mysterious glens. It's amazing. It's all there. It's all there. It's all there. You're standing on the bones of the ancestors when you walk these paths through the woods, through the mountains, on the coast. And yet you're surrounded by modernity, modern culture. It's very much a here and now place to visit. And, and I love that dichotomy of being neither here nor there. You're in a transitional space. Because a lot of people are thinking about budget travel tips. And basically, you're going to get what you pay for if you do it smartly. And uh, what really enhances the value is your ability to take that step into the meaningful, mythic, creative, inspirational culture, the past, the heritage, the people. And that's our challenge as travelers. And uh, when we have good guides like you, it helps. When we plan in advance and do our reading and know the context, that helps. And when we travel and we take that step to connect with the culture instead of seeing it on stage, that really is the best budget tip I can offer. And Kathy, you've helped me that way, and I think you've helped a lot of our listeners. Thank you very much, and I hope to see you in County Louth. I hope you do too, and everyone out there listening, you're very welcome. Will you sing to me that song, When I Come to Louth, about the mountains of Morn into the sea? I will. Okay. And it will sing to you. It will sing the to me. The land will sing to you. That's a beautiful thing. Kathy, thanks again. You don't have to live by the ocean to be affected by the tides. Sailor and marine conservationist Jonathan White explores the spirit of the ocean for us in just a bit. But first, here's some verbal snapshots of Ireland sent to us by our Travel with Rick Steves listeners in the form of an original haiku poem. Carrie Dexter from Tallahassee, Florida, sends us this haiku about the Cooley Peninsula in Ireland's County Louth. It's home to ancient sites, the setting for a mythological saga about a first-century cattle raid called the Tane and birthplace to St. Bridget. Cooley morning, mist, music, mystery, rise from heartland of legends. Laura Hardin from Escondido, California, found Ireland's Hill of Tara a magical place when she first visited in 2008. She wrote this haiku to recall the music the setting inspires. Standing where the high kings sat, 
I look across the valley. Skylark sings. Anne G. Robin Smith of Everett, Washington, writes this about the Irish weather. It's odd that there's sun. The traditional moist days were not to be had. When you're raised on the beaches of Southern California, the sea gets into your blood. For Jonathan White, being a lifelong mariner means dedicating himself to learning what the seas have to teach us. For many years, Jonathan hosted seminars at sea from Puget Sound to Southeast Alaska aboard his schooner, the Crusader. But one spring, a surprisingly strong tide in the Bay of Alaska nearly destroyed his boat. Jonathan turned that into a chance to travel all over the world and gain a depth of knowledge about the mysteries and the power of the tide. He describes what he discovered about the primal forces of nature in his book. It's called Tides, the Science and Spirit of the Ocean. Jonathan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. You know, you always think about the tide, but you never know anything about it. It just comes and goes, and I have some foggy idea that it has to do with the moon and and gravity and so on, but you've made a study out of this. Now, when you look at the spot where the water hits the land, what do you see? I mean, I'm talking really close up. What do you think about? Well, I think about the interface of a lot of things, about this big, this massive ocean, which is 75% of the earth, and of the population, our culture, our life, you know, and our history with that ocean and living on the coast. Because I think of when I was a kid, you'd build a sandcastle, <laughs> and you know, in a, just a matter of minutes, the tide's coming in. You can see the tide encroaching. There's no way to stop it, and That's your little right. creation is gone. That's right. I look at the tide coming in and filling tide pools and then going back out and leaving it for me to scavenge through. Mm-hmm. And I would think that even goes back to, you know, ancient times when people would actually fish and find a livelihood according to the tide. There's so much if you live close to the salt water that the tide impacts your life. Exactly. And, you know, our ancestors, when they came into this along our coast, for example, it was the first place they settled along the coast. And it was because they could get food in the intertidal zone. So when the tide is out, they could go out and get chitons and urchins and crabs and so forth to feed off of. In fact, the Tlingit people that lived up the coast said when the tide is out, the table is set. I love and that, that. So that's oh, where that's they so settled. Good. It was easy to make a living. And as a kid, I mean, you live on Orcas Island up in yes. San Juan, right, uh-huh. north of Seattle. And we would vacation there before I ever went to Europe. And we'd leave home for like a month every summer. And my mom would declare, I have no meat. You're going to be living <laughs> off the land. And that means we're on our boat. And when the tide's out, we were out there getting clams and oysters and crabs. We'd go, yeah. I remember this one bay, it would be a gorgeous bay, shallow bay on Susha Island. And the tide goes out, and it was blanketed with seaweed. And we would put on our old tennis shoes, and we invented this way of getting crabs. We'd drag our shoes over this blanket of green seaweed, and if you hit a bump, it was a Dungeness crab. <laughs> and we grew up just feasting on crabs. And you take that back a 1,000 years to indigenous tribes here, to Europeans living on the coast. Like the Tlingit people said in Alaska, when the tide is out, the table is set. The tide also provided power before they had steam engines. I'm not talking about modern tidal power generation. I'm just talking about freeloading on the tide. What were some clever things people did? Talk a little bit about that. Well, back in the 16th century, actually, at the same time that they were developing windmills, they were also putting windmill-like devices in rivers and using that power to 
for baking, for uh, making paper, uh, so you for have, irrigation, all kinds of things. You have water mills sitting on a river because the water is flowing by because of the, the flow of the river. But mm-hmm. you're, you're talking about tidal rivers in this case, right? The water coming in and then going out. That's right. So they would harness that. Absolutely. And that would be like a thousand years ago. That's kind of what brought Europe out of the dark ages around the year 1000 was they had this innovation to harness the wind and harness the water power and so on. Windmills are are popping up and and they would be tidal mills as well. That's right. I I don't think people really realize how long this history is. And so in the middle of the 16th century was really the heyday of tide energy, these mills that we're talking about. And there are thousands of them around Europe. And actually, there were three or 400 of them right on the East Coast of the United States around the 1750 to 1800s. And what I learned in, I think it's the Loire Valley and in uh, a river in south of Ireland, people who were traders, they knew they had two trips a day to freeload with the tide miles and miles inland up this tidal river. Hmm. And then they would flow back down. But they would go up the river when the tide was coming in, and then they would go down the river when the tide was going out. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like, well, yes, of course. But, I mean, it just seems remarkable that the tide could be just this low-hanging fruit of available power if you know how to harness it. Absolutely. And the other thing that's uh, that you mentioned, the, the cultural influence there, that like the early tide mills on the East Coast, for example, were installed before we were using clocks. So when the big gates closed to operate those mills that had to do right at high tide, the big clunk, that was time for them. It was time to go to work. So it's, it's fascinating just the role it played. So let's talk about the science of tides. By the way, we're talking with Jonathan White, and he is a, you could call him a tidophiliac. He spent years just chasing the tide, studying the tide, thinking about the tides. He's written a book called Tides, The Science and Spirit of the Ocean. So we know, basically, the moon has a gravitational pull, and it kind of pulls the the ocean one way or another, you make it much more poetic. In your book, you called the relationship between the ocean and the moon a celestial dance. Tell us more <laughs> about that. To harken back a little bit to what you are saying, I, I started out as a sailor and a writer and uh, really knowing very little about the tide. Like, like most people, we know the moon has something to do with it, but not exactly what. And it wasn't until this big accident that I had on a boat up in right. Alaska that I suddenly woke up and said, hey, what is going on here? And I thought I'd just read a couple of books, read a couple of articles, and learn everything there was to know about the tide. I mean, how complex could it be? But the more I read, the more I studied, the more complex, the more fascinating, the more poetic it became. So suddenly I was on a journey 10, 15 years into this and 300 books and so on and so forth. So it's far more complex than most people realize. So it's layer after layer after layer. So yes, the the sun and the moon play a major role, but it's all their relationships in the heavens that have an influence, a particular relationship with what's happening in the oceans. So the oceans, and you started out this interview talking about how we have to remember most of the surface of the Earth is oceans. I mean, this is a big dance floor if you're going to get back to that celestial dance. That's right. You talked about how it gives a new meaning to the term long-distance relationship. We've got celestial bodies pulling that. Now, we think about planetary, or I don't know, the sun and the moon and things lining up. All I know is sometimes you got a wimpy tide, and sometimes you got a real high tide, and sometimes you got a real low tide. What causes the tide to come and go twice a day and sometimes come big and sometimes go big? 
Well, let's start with the last part of that. Why does it come big sometimes and not so big at other times? It's really about the various alignments of the sun and the moon. And it boils down to whether the sun and the moon are working together to create larger tides. And that happens when they are aligned. There's a great Greek word called syzygy. It huh. means yoked together. And that's oh. when the sun, the moon, and the earth are aligned. And they are aligned when the moon is full or when it's new. That's when the earth, sun, and moon are aligned. And that's when we have the biggest tides because the sun and the moon are working together their okay. gravitational pull together. So the moon is much smaller than the sun, but it's much closer to the earth, so its gravitational pull on the earth is actually bigger than the sun. That's right. And if you've got the sun on one side and the moon on the other side, the moon wins out, but the sun negates a lot of that pull. No, actually, they're working together during that time. Really? Yeah, they're, they're working together because, I mean, it appears that they are opposite, but they yeah. are because of the gravitational pull and the forces on the earth, you're basically having a situation where you get the largest tides of, the, right. say, the month or whatever right. it is. And then also when the moon is between the moon, excuse the me, the, the earth yeah. and the sun, you also have the largest tides. That's okay. when, the, when the moon is new, right? Okay. So when the, when the moon is between the earth and the sun, you've got, it's a tug of war and you've got two big things pulling on the rope in that direction. That's right. That's right. What's the smallest tide? Would that be when the moon when they're out of sync then? That's right. So when the moon is in quarter or three quarters. Oh. So it's at right angles to the sun. And basically what's happening there is the sun or the moon are ro is robbing some of the other's gravitational pull. Yeah. Now you hear these, there's these uh, little oddities. Uh, there's different kind of tides. Isn't there a word called neap tide? Yeah. So it's great that you bring that up because the neap tides are the lower tides. Okay. So that's when the moon is in quarter or three-quarter, okay. when it's at right angles to the sun. Now, you could have a freakish situation when things are closer because of orbits. When that's right. Then their pull, if you've got things lining up and their orbit has them unusually close, you could have a, a once-in-a-year tide or once-in-a-decade tide, I suppose. Exactly. And, and the one, one of the ones that we're familiar with is a king tide, right? So a king tide is when the, the moon doesn't orbit the earth in a perfect circle. Sometimes right. it's closer, sometimes it's further away. Closer means the word is perigee and further away <laughs> is epigee, right? So when the moon is in perigee, in other words, closest to the earth, it's exerting more gravitational pull. So now if you combine that with a new or full moon, you're going to have larger tides, maybe king tides. And what, are those a good thing historically for people or are they a bad thing? I mean, what, what is the impact of those? Does it matter? Well, I would say that for our ancestors that settled along the coast, they knew about these things. In fact, I'm sure that they had a better practical understanding of the tides than we oh, do yeah. today. Yeah. So they knew these things were coming and they knew during one of the king tides, that means high highs and low you lows. You could roll a big log higher up to your settlement on, That's a, true. on a king tide. Or you knew where you can go and get sea urchins that you don't normally get because oh, yeah. the tide's going to be lower low than usual. Oh, I gotcha. So um, it was a survival. Sailor, surfer, and marine conservationist Jonathan White is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. He's studied the impacts of tides around the world and shares the mysteries nature has shown him in his book, Tides, the Science and Spirit of the Ocean. His website is jonathanwhitewriter.com. Now, you talk also about how the Atlantic is more strongly tuned to the moon and the Pacific is more tuned into the sun. And you explain that you learned that from Inuit elders up in the Arctic. 
Well, yes, um, I spent a fair amount of time up in the Arctic. I traveled all over because what I basically did in the book is I took some element of the tide and I went to where it was most dramatically at play. So I traveled all over. As people do when yeah. they're studying the tide. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or have to do, of course. Okay. Uh, oh, gosh, I have to go to Mont-Saint-Michel or right. the Arctic or Panama. Or so you went up to the, yeah. the Arctic and you hung out with these Inuits. And one of the things that I learned up there, and really the the tide is about a lot of different things. As I said before, it's complex. But if you keep stirring the pot, what you get down to is the tide is about vibration. And more specifically, it's about resonance, when something vibrates in response to something else. Okay. Now, I'm a musician, and I know you get resonant frequencies. If you hit a middle C... A G, an octave and a half above that, will vibrate because if you divide the strings in a certain way, they're both the same length. Yeah. And they vibrate harmonically. Yeah. You're saying that in a different sense, you've got sort of a parallel kind of resonant vibration going on? That's exactly how the tides work. Tell me more. So if you, and I'm going to use a little different analogy, but yours also plays out. When you're singing in the shower, mm-hmm. we all have that experience. Oh, yeah, the and the whole thing rumbles together. Yeah, and that, that shower has a tendency to vibrate. So you've hit the proper exactly. um, vibration measurements to make everything work in sync. You're singing along and you hit a C or a D or an F, and okay. that happens to be yeah. the oscillation, the natural oscillation of your shower stall. Okay. It'll resonate, and you feel brilliant, right? Your your voice gets rich and powerful. deep and full. And, well, if you blow up that analogy to the size of the soul, system, the singer is the sun and the moon singing the notes, various relationships that they have, and the shower stall or the ocean basins of the world yeah. that all have a tendency to vibrate to certain, if you will, notes so from you're, the You're talking actually about the floor of the sea. Well, no, I'm talking about the, the basin, the whole basin. That's the shower stall. Huh. And we think of, when we look out on the Pacific, we think of one basin, but it, actually there are many, many, many I, basins you know, within it. I've never said this before but on the radio, but that is trippy. It is. It it's, is. It's trippy. And we're talking tides here with Jonathan White. His book is Tides, The Science and Spirit of the Ocean. So it's all vibrating in a sort of a synchronized way. Like I said, it boils down to resonance. So if you have a tide um, that is large in one bay, and then not so large, you know, uh, 10 miles down the coast. Yes, I've noticed The difference that. is that that one bay might be very resonant, so it has a larger tide, and the other bay because not. Because of its physical, its accidental physical design. Its shape, exactly. Its, its shape. length, its depth, even the temperature and salinity of the water attribute to okay. how this thing is going to resonate. And there are, when we talk about the sun and the moon and all the different positions as different notes, right, huh. in the heavens... Now, there are over 400 of these different notes or calls or positions of the sun and moon that actually have a tide signature on Earth. Now, in your book, you talked about in Panama, on the west side, it's a 28-foot tide, and on the east side, it's only a 10-inch tide. Yeah. So there's a good example of resonant qualities. So the Bay of Panama is a highly resonant basin, so it has a very large tide. And as it turns out, the Gulf of Mexico is not a resonant basin. It's a dissonant basin, in fact. So it has a very, very small tide. And by the way, the Baltic and the Mediterranean are also dissonant basins. I've always been disappointed in that. In the Mediterranean, (laughs) there's almost no tide. Exactly. And it's because it's not resonant. Are there some places in the Mediterranean that are more resonant? Yes, up 
towards Venice. Because I was going to say Venice does have, I always feel like I'm almost contradicting myself because the Mediterranean's got no tide. But in Venice, when you have a high tide with a certain barometric pressure and a wind, you've got a flood. That's right. There is a tide in Venice because of the shape of that part of the Adriatic Sea. That's right. And um, this idea of resonance is not just about the sun and the moon, but it's about all kinds of things that are happening around the earth. For example, part of the reason why Venice has a larger tide is that the Adriatic Sea is highly resonant with the winds out of Africa. So it is a complex dance. Yes. It is a complex dance. And by the way, the Bay of Fundy is a highly resonant basin. It's the largest tide in the world at at record tide of 54 feet 6 inches. In other words, if you're in the boat in the middle of the bay, you could be beached or you could have an anchor with a 50-foot rope and it wouldn't hit the bottom. That's right depending on the high tide or the low tide, in the same spot. That's right. Because of the design of that particular bay that brings in the water and pushes out the water as its little small player in this complicated, many-faceted dance between celestial bodies and the ocean. Yeah, and I, I actually say it's all of that. The water is moving up and down, of course, but it's doing that because it's just it's vibrating with the sun and the moon. It's like the opera singer singing and the the wine glass breaking, right? That's what's happening in in the Bay of Fundy. This is what I love about travel. It gets us (laughs) out of our routine, and it shows us there are so many dimensions of this beautiful planet that you can get tuned into. And when you travel, you get to hang out with people who have found their niche and they're freakishly enthusiastic about this or that, and it just opens us up to the wonders of this planet. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Jonathan White. His book is Tides, The Science and Spirit of the Ocean. Jonathan, you've spent a lot of time looking at tides coming and going all across the world. Share with us, just to wrap things up here, one particularly inspirational moment as you were watching the tide at work. I think probably, I think of Mont Saint-Michel, which, of course, is a spiritual destination. And I know you've been there and done programs there. And I went there actually twice, and um, I ended up interviewing the monks that live and practice there about their relationship with the place, with the tides, and also with their spirituality. And I spent a week there, and and as you know, it's such a moody place, and it's such a dramatic tide. I would say it was one of the more moving places that I've been to ever. Standing on that island where they said, build it big and they will come. And when the tide goes out, it's just stranded in a sea of mud. And then the tide comes in, it's a whole different world. And you saw how spirituality and culture and history and nature and this fascinating celestial dance all came together. I love it. Again, Jonathan White, the book is Tides, The Science and Spirit of the Ocean. Thanks, Jonathan, for being with us. Thanks. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Keith Stickelmeyer read our listener travel haiku. Send us your own original haiku about your travel impressions, and we might even read it on the air one day. Details are on our website at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. My public television miniseries, Rick Steves' Art of Europe, takes you on an exciting sweep through the entire awe-inspiring story of European art history in six hours. Watch the series from the Parthenon to Picasso on your local station or stream it on PBS Passport or at ricksteves.com.